Hello, and welcome back to the Clavio Data Science Podcast. If this is your first time joining us, I hope you enjoy your stay. We talk quite a bit about data science here. Those of you who've listened to previous episodes won't be surprised to hear me say it, but data science is a large, complex field. And while that's true of the technical skills that you need to be a successful data scientist, I mean it in a larger sense as well. There are many skills that are essential to success in data science that you won't find in a textbook. This episode, we're going to focus on one of those skills, learning from customers. In any role where your data science work will eventually become a product or a service that is sold to a customer, it's absolutely crucial to be able to learn from them, what they say, what they do, what they want, and what they need. This episode, I'm joined by several members of the team at Clavio. I'll ask each of the people on the panel today to give a quick introduction, who you are, which part of the data science team you work on or with, and what you do there. Let's go ahead and start with Sarah. Hi, everyone. I'm Sarah. I'm a product designer here at Clavio, and I primarily work on the intelligence pod on the design side and with the data science side, I work on the strategies team. Things like trying to help you, let's say, trying to create a good subject line. What does that entail? How data can help you with that? Strategizing how we can best come out with good features. Very nice. Next up, Adi. Hey, thanks for having me on, Michael. I'm Adi. I'm a machine learning engineer for the product merchandising team at Clavio. I work towards helping our customers generate and deliver relevant and high-quality product recommendations to their customers. Next up, Ken. Hi, I'm Ken, product manager. I work with Adi and the product merchandising team here on the data science behind making intelligent product recommendations and the user experience for configuring those and the, the roadmap associated with that. Next up, Carola. Hi, everyone. My name is Carola Leiva. I'm a product manager working with experimenting at Clevio, which entails A-B testing features mainly for now. Very nice. And Anthony. Hi, I'm Anthony Wong, a senior researcher on the design team here at Clavio. I support our developer experience and also help um, mentor other folks in other product areas when they are talking to our customers in order to learn from them. Very nice. So quite a few people that it's the first time that you're getting to hear from them. So I'm personally excited. So let's go ahead and start with the main topic here. As is often the case on this podcast, I actually want to start by taking a step slightly back and asking why. I stated it as an assumption in the intro that it's crucial to learn from your customers. But I'd actually like to dig into that. Why is it important to learn from your customers? I think a crucial precursor to learning from your customers is to identify your customers. Whether you're building a company, you're building products, or you're writing a book, it's really crucial to know who you're doing all of this for. And having clarity on who is going to be impacted from your work is not only going to give you clarity on who you want to reach out to, what questions you want to ask them, and, and what sort of features you want to build for them. It'll also help you stay focused on your core mission and add features that create value for your intended audience. Getting back to your original question, right? Why is it important to learn from your customer? And here, I think I'd like to reference one of Clavio's core values, which is being customer first. 
at Clavia, we start from the customer, understand their needs, and then we work backwards to decide what features we want to build next. This is a viewpoint that's completely opposite to starting with your product or your idea and building it out and then trying to find a market segment and trying to fit it there, finding product market fit after you've built the product, upsides and downsides to both. But the biggest upside to going with the customer first approach is you're able to identify what are some of the biggest pain points that your customers have and then build solutions for those high impact problems. I agree with all the things that Adi say, and I just want to phrase it in one simple sentence. We actually want to build that customer empathy that allow us to build the right products for our target customers. And I think Adi, you mentioned all those pieces and building off of that, you know, once you identify who your customers are, what you'll realize is oftentimes they're not who you are, right? At Clavia, we're really trying to empower creators. And while some of us might be creators ourselves, we don't represent the full range of who we're trying to serve. And so it's really important to get that scope, that range of those perspectives as we're building out our product. One thing I've noticed that we do at Clavio, uh, a lot of PMs are engaging in like really frequent touch points with customers, like on a weekly basis, a lot of the time. And so like in industry jargon, this is sometimes referred to as like dual track agile or continuous discovery. We don't really refer to it that way internally, but it's a way of just staying in touch and in tune with customers so that you never really leave that customer centric mindset, right? Um, and to Corolla's point, building and sustaining that empathy over time so that even as you go into the development phase, you're continually engaging, you're continually learning and building out your body of knowledge about what the customer needs makes it much more likely that when you finally do get to launch day, that the metrics that you care about are going to go up because the product solves real problems and it actually fits the market. I think that's the number one reason why customer research is so important is because if, if you get it wrong and you're not validating and challenging your assumptions, you fall into that build trap of, we built something that we thought was cool, but nobody is really using it because it doesn't solve for their needs. Yeah. And I think you make a great point that you're just learning more and more over time. And the great thing about research is that you'll never be hundred percent certain about anything, but it helps you dial in your confidence when you're making a decision like that. And with certain decisions, like there's a high amount of risk maybe involved or a lot of work that would need to be done in order to launch a certain you know, feature or product. And for those decisions, you really want to have a high level of confidence that the research helps you get before you actually get to launch day. It really helps with prioritization when you know what your customers really, really are looking for. I was reading a book, Lean Product Playbook. That's actually the, the name of the book. And they talk about one of the reasons why so many products fail is because essentially what Ken is explaining is that the products don't meet the customer needs in a way that is better than the alternatives. And that happened for the reasons that Ken is explaining. What helps when it comes to trying to do like customer research is to really approach the problem objectively. So that way we're not trying to solve more subjectively to what we think would work when at the end of the day, our pain points are essentially different and we might not have a business and they have business needs. I like to liken it to a doctor-patient relationship. Doctor always has to ask contextual questions to understand fully what is that patient coming in with. That way they can prescribe a lot more accurately. But if they were just to kind of ask basic general questions, but they don't get more into context of what's the day-to-day -day life of this patient? How is their mental health? How are all the other things that are feeding into the diagnosis that's coming in? Then they won't be able to solve the problem to the best of their ability that would be in the best interest to that patient. You know, I think if you, if you rewind like 10 years ago, 
everybody read the lean startup and everybody was like, okay, like we'll do this build, measure, learn thing where we'll, we'll just build something, we'll make it an MVP and then we'll set it live and we'll see what happens. And then we'll learn from that. And I think part of my journey as a, as a product manager has been doing some of that. And like, that is one way to learn, but like, there's also, there are faster ways to learn. You're always going to learn when you, when you launch something or if you AB test something, whether or not it produces the effect, whether or not people are, are actually using it, but there are so many shorter cycles that you can get in along the way. People talk about the timeline of delivering value to the market, right? You can reduce that timeline of delivering value by injecting customer-focused research all along the way. And it might actually take a little bit longer to get your MVP out the door because you're learning and kind of doing these little mini pivots all along the way, but you're really shortening the timeline for delivering value to the market. I think, you know, go, going back 10 years, like I said, there you, you could probably find a lot more examples of people who were trying to get it done without doing a lot of user research. But I think what we've learned is that doing the research is, is a really good thing and, and speeds things up quite a bit. Staying on the topic of empathy on, on this topic of delivering value quickly, I'd like to talk a little bit about ways that talking to customers has drastically changed thinking. Have you ever learned something from a customer that made you drastically alter the way that you thought about a problem? I don't have an answer for drastically change. I think many times we have hypotheses and we want to validate those hypotheses with the customers. Sometimes are correct, sometimes they are not, but I haven't seen that they are 100% wrong. They are just different. And I think as you realize and you start talking with customers, many things are not black and white. I think many times you notice that your hypothesis is right for some particular type of customer, but other customers think differently. And that's when you start like develop that customer empathy and you you realize that maybe is something is going to be helpful only for half of the customers or something like that. So I don't have a good example of something that has drastically changed, but I think how do you basically validate your assumption and you go and you learn from the customer and you change your hypothesis and go back and again, validate those. You start to key in on your customer's mental models, right? Like they start to emerge and things that you hadn't thought about before become clear and evident and make sense within the context of their environment and their day-to-day. So I can give an example of something that Adi and I worked on. Adi and I have been very interested in the product recommendation space. Obviously at Clavio, a lot of our customers are e-commerce businesses. And so they have these big catalogs of products. And part of what they use the platform for is trying to connect the right consumer to the right product in their catalog at, at the right time. And we learned a ton in our last research sprint, talked to over a dozen customers. And I think one example of like something that we hadn't really thought of before was, you know, we think about making recommendations and we have a certain mental model and we think about personalized recommendations versus popular recommendations. And one of the mental models that emerged from talking to customers was this notion of complementary products versus competitive or alternative products. And so when you think about an e-commerce business, you get all these customer signals, people are looking at products, people are buying products, they have different levels of intent for different products as they're looking at them. And one of the things that kind of emerged in conversations was the idea of if someone's looking at something but hasn't expressed a ton of intent, then there's this notion of making an alternative product, right? You know, you were you were looking at this power drill and here's a few others that also are in, you know, the same general price point, but have maybe different feature sets and different value props, as opposed to if somebody adds that to their cart, maybe instead of showing them other drills, you're saying, hey, 
we think you're going to buy this. Here's also the drill bit set that goes with it. And here's like the charger, or whatever accessories get paired with it. And so that was a, an example of maybe not like an earth shattering insight, but just something that really helped click into focus how they think about recommendations. And, you know, that could have real implications for the types of recommenders and the way that we position them in the UI of the Klaviyo app going forward. Adding to that, I think most of our work till Ken joined our team was around improving the performance of our personalization algorithms. And we thought that was super important because that drives click-through rate and traffic to your website. But in the research sprints that we did led by Ken, we found out that while click-through rates or conversions rates were important, our customers were more interested in having a greater degree of control about how their recommendations are delivered. And that's helped us inform some of the work for 2022. So it's been really, really helpful having those conversations. From like personal experience, when I was jumping into coming up with a really good subject line for your campaign, when I first went into it, I just thought people tend to deal with like writer's block. I wasn't fully aware or sure of how they were kind of thinking when it comes to coming up with a subject line. Didn't know that there was even a process behind it, that there are methods that people use and things of that nature. The thing that really caught my attention that clicked when I started speaking to more people was that the intent at the end of the day when writing a good subject line is to influence your open rates since that's the first line of communication that hits the person who's receiving the email and kind of like a light bulb goes off and things like, oh, so subject line is actually just one puzzle piece to this larger picture of open rates. And that when they're thinking of sending a campaign, they're thinking about their subject line, but they're also thinking about all the other factors that come into place when it comes to having a good open rate. This is a larger thing that we're actually trying to solve. It's not just trying to get the right subject line, but the right send time, the right audience, all these things come into consideration. And they're all thinking about that. That's something that I could never predict without having spoken to them and understanding what is their thought process from start to finish when it comes to subject line. And then it starts to open up different pathways that I didn't think of. And that's something so important, especially for product managers, for the whole team that is developing a feature. What is the difference between basically what we call the problem space versus the solution space? Sarah, you're defining that like what the customer describe or the benefit that the customer want to get versus the how, which is how do you deliver that value to the customer? And I think that's so important. And you get it by talking to customer and asking the right question and not asking leading question by asking, why do you need that? And I think that's so important, Sarah. Along the lines of things not having to be an earth-shattering, drastic effect, are there any cases where talking with a customer, researching a customer otherwise, what you find is, yes, that's pretty much what we expected to hear, but it was still important for us to actually get confirmation that what we thought was accurate? Yeah, I mean, that's always a delightful moment when your hypothesis is proven right, right? Because then it lets you know that you're on the right track, right? And so user research for me is like this continual process of getting part of it right, part of it wrong, learning new stuff. And then hopefully you get better over time. And as your hypotheses are more well-informed and informed by prior research, you're getting more and more of it right. 
But yeah, that's, that's always a very good feeling when you're able to confirm a lot of the ideas that you work on as a product manager aren't even necessarily your own ideas. Maybe obvious is the wrong word, but they're like these very top of mind initiatives that everybody's thinking about that come from maybe your own mind, but also, you know, other parts of the company. There's a whole brain trust that you work with as a product manager a, a lot of the time. And a lot of the time, what you'll find is that like a lot of those ideas do resonate. Maybe some of them don't, but also to Adi's point, like at the top of the call, being able to prioritize those is really difficult sometimes. And sometimes you can only get two or three of them done over the course of a few quarters or over a year. Even if it's not a binary, like, is this a good idea or not? Being able to describe the value that it delivers in higher resolution and being able to do those compare and contrast analyses of like different opportunities against each other. These are the things that we're going to go after first. And then these are the things that we think also provide value but are less urgent that we might sequence, you know, a little bit further down the line in, in the roadmap is also like a really important output, I think, of talking to customers. Sometimes you have information, which is quantity information that you understand from customers. And that's kind of like a different way to learn from customers. You have data, you have like, I don't know, you can do A-B testing, but talking to customers and doing that continuous feedback and continuous discovery that Ken was talking in the beginning and validating those assumptions is, is so important because that data doesn't speak why. And many times that's what you're missing from the data. You can have the data and know what the customers are doing, but you don't know why. Talking with customers is really important because of like understanding that piece that the data doesn't give you. Another thing that can be helpful, you know, might be hearing the same thing, but from a different voice. So I think oftentimes you might hear feedback from like sales or support, like, hey, a customer requested this or they're having this problem. But when you actually get on a call with someone and they show you the challenge that they're having or they explain in their own words, it makes it much more real and salient for folks. And it's much more actionable, I think, at that point. If people are, want to take action on what they just heard, they want to solve that problem that this person was so frustrated on the call. So that can be another value of you've heard this before, but just hearing it again from from the actual person can make such a difference. I know we're getting further away from your original question, Michael, but um, just building off what Anthony said, there is something really impactful about like hearing it directly from the customer, right? It's very different from like getting a write-up from a product manager, like who did the research, like here are the key takeaways. I really enjoy having members of the cross-disciplinary team partake in the research process. Adi was great the last time we did like a focused research sprint and Adi's a, a data scientist. So it's not necessarily incumbent upon him to, to come and moderate customer interviews, but it's great that he did. And I love it when I work on pods that do that because it's so much more impactful to hear it directly from the customer, feeling that empathy for them rather than just like reading words that somebody else wrote. It's a really great idea to involve, I wouldn't say as many people as possible, but involve, you know, the people that are going to be working directly on the solution in those conversations. I think it, it, it pays dividends when you, when you do that. I agree with you, Ken. It was a lot of fun talking to all of our customers. One of the perspectives that comes out of engineers and data scientists talking to our customers is when we look at building our solutions later, knowing the exact need, having heard it from the source, makes it so much easier to put yourself in the shoes of your customer. Much like you said, if I had instead read a report that you'd created, I would have walked away from that report with those set of key insights that you summarized. But having the opportunity to talk to our customers, listen to their frustrations and their wants and needs, it's really impactful and motivating and has its own positive influences when we come to designing and deploying those solutions. 
I think that's a great segue. We've talked a little bit about the why. I'd like to dig into the how of learning from customers. And we've heard some of the benefits of using different techniques, uh, in this case, talking directly with customers. And in fact, having people who are going to be working hands-on on the solution itself, being part of that process of talking directly with customers, some of the benefits that you get there. But what are some of the methods that you've used to learn from customers as part of your role? And what goes into the choice of how you're going to do that and when you choose different methods to get different benefits? So I was already mentioning the two different sides, which is the qualitative and the quantitative learning from customers. In the qualitative, we have, of course, we have talked a lot about like customer interviews and there are different types of customer interviews that you can run. The continuous discovery that Ken was mentioning before, but you can also do usability testing with customers in the, in the same customer interview. And we also use a lot of feedback that we receive from people that have contact with customers, for example, customer support, customer manager, sales, all those people can give you feedback from customers that you can receive and get, you can build that customer empathy that you have. And in the quantity side that I was mentioning before, we have analytics, all the things that customers are doing in the product. You can have also surveys. You can send a survey and get a lot of feedback from customers. And it's more like quantity than actually qualitative, but you can include qualitative questions and you can do A-B testing. I would say that it depends on what is the objective or what are you trying to learn on which method you use. And I think there are different types of feedback that you need during the product development process. And it's important to, to realize and figure out what is the objective and who are the customers that you have to talk to define exactly what do you do. Yeah, I, I've used a lot of the tools that Corolla just mentioned. I'm not necessarily an expert on a lot of them, but I can describe kind of how, how we've used them and like where they kind of fit in well. Interviews, I leaned on them heavily, especially when I first started, right? Because we were doing discovery research. I was new to the industry, to the company. And so it was really just about, hey, I don't know what I don't know. Like, let's have a lot of open-ended conversation, like a very kind of like semi-structured conversation around, tell me about what your day-to-day -day looks like. What is it that you're trying to do? How do product recommendations fit in? Like very, very high level. And then as you kind of fill in those knowledge gaps, you know, we were able to get more specific about our hypotheses about the specific things that we wanted to understand better. And the conversations became a little bit more specific, but then to Corolla's point, you can only do so many conversations and you're not necessarily getting statistically significant sample size. Something that we did was we used those conversations to inform a survey, right? Which is a lot more scalable. You send it out. And then if you get a couple hundred people to answer those questions, and you have to have very specific questions in the survey, right? Because survey fatigue is a real thing. And you only get so many answers out of people when they, when they complete it then you're able to say with you know a higher degree of certainty like yeah like these are the most important things that matter like out of the eight ideas that we have these are the ones that are really resonating and sometimes the survey results match the conversations and sometimes they surprise you a little bit when you open it up to a, to a bigger sample size one thing that i haven't done as much that i wish i had and plan to going forward is more observational studies rather than having it be like a conversation asking people to share their screen can i just watch while you do this task and see see what they do and 
things that they do that are really illuminating, they don't realize would be like valuable for sharing. And so like it never comes up in the course of a, a conversation. And then obviously usability studies when you're a little bit further along in the prototyping process that usually comes, you know, after you've validated your assumptions and you kind of want to start getting real feedback on like the look and feel of some of the ideas that you're workshopping. I was just going to build off of Ken's point of observation. So observation is a technique that you can add to an interview. And I think it's just one of the many techniques you can add to an interview. I think we tend to think of interviews being like, you're just asking people questions and they're responding. There's a lot of interesting activities you can add. So you might do some like co-designing with someone and have them kind of drop what their ideal experience might look like, or maybe you have like a list of features that you want feedback on. And you can do like a dot voting exercise or like kind of give them a hundred dollars of fake money and see where they allocate things or kind of have them maybe draw out a timeline if you're trying to understand how their behaviors have changed over time. So there's a lot of things that you can do to augment interviews and really interesting ways to get insight from a different perspective. One of the simplest ways I've found of improving my like interviewing skills, simply like pivoting from asking like general abstract questions to trying to collect stories from people, you know, rather than like saying like, does this work well for you? Or do you, do you struggle with this? It's like, tell me about the last time you really struggled with this part of the platform. And then a part of their brain lights up because they're reliving the experience and they're describing it to you. They're just able to provide a lot more detail. That was one simple thing that I changed that I think like really improved the quality of the insights that interviews were generating. I mixed that with actually asking for sharing the screen. So I asked customers, can you tell me about the last time? And can you show me what you did? And many times you get very interesting feedback because customers remember what they were doing and they actually show you as like, I don't understand why this is why I had to do this when I'm trying to do that. So it's, it's, it's really interesting what your Ken is saying and combining it with the actually show me is also like building lighter. Two things, the observation piece. I like noticed that that made a huge difference when I was like conducting the user interviews. So like when we just released a new product, instead of them generally explaining the feedback, I found that it helped a ton when I just asked if they can just share their screen and go to the page where the tool lives and then just have them open it up, relive that experience of just like, tell me how this was like the first time that you saw this. What did that feel like? What the general experience was like? So having them like visually see it helps them mentally connect again back to it. The second piece that I found like also helps is always veering away from the yes or no questions because more often than not, they'll feel pressured to answer one or the other. And so always kind of asking experience-based, tell me the last time, things of that nature, where that'll be a lot more accurate because they'll feel less pressure to actually have to answer that yes or no, even if it's not the correct answer. And then also, I think what generally helps is see how the first interview goes and see what didn't work. Sometimes like that first one that you do, or just like, I think I didn't frame it as best as I could. I think that I can revisit the script that I made and then get the person in a better headspace when I'm going to frame the questions or ask the questions and everything and see how it goes. And then you begin to tweak it, learn from like the pieces that you felt could have been better. And then maybe the mistake that you made and then correct it the next time.
Yeah, that personally resonates with me. I had a customer interview project in my first quarter at Clavio and the first few interviews that I had were <laughs> not the most ideal, shall we say. But like Sarah said, iterating on my script, understanding what resonated with people, what they'd like to talk about, what wasn't as clear to them and figuring all of that out definitely made the interviews a lot smoother. I think a big part of it too is like making sure you're talking to the right people, which seems obvious and it's something that we mentioned before. But I mean, I remember like Adi and I had a, had a couple of interviews where we just didn't really learn a whole lot because we were talking to folks that had like a small business with, you know, with like four products, right? So figuring out which products to recommend just wasn't that high of a priority for them. And so it sounds obvious, but like, you know, there's a finite number of hours in a day, you only have so much energy. And if you're spending it talking to the wrong people, that can be like a big time sink. So making sure that you figure out who the right folks to talk to before you set up interviews is like a really important thing to do. I'd like to stay on this topic of running a successful call with a customer for a second. We've talked about some pieces of advice, like avoid yes or no questions, ask for stories rather than being too vague. I'm interested in other pieces of advice. Like what are your biggest pieces of advice for having a successful customer call? Don't be afraid to be what seems like too basic here. I think for good reason, customer calls can be imposing to people who haven't done them before. And I'd like to make sure that we cover what are the most important things, especially for someone who's never run one before. A couple of tips that I have is first off, when you're kicking off a call, spend some time just giving the person context about why are you talking to them? What are you hoping to get out of the call? What are you going to cover? That helps them set themselves up, you know, gives them time to maybe think through some of the things that they want to say, but they're not caught off guard by anything you might bring up as well. If you want to record the call, that's when you would bring that up as well. Just spend, you know, a few minutes. It might seem like you're taking too much time, but it pays off in the end by spending like three minutes just setting that context. Another tip that I would have is making sure that you adopt kind of that learning mindset. I think especially we work in B2B and we're working with customers and we sometimes feel the pressure to be the expert in Clavio and how people are using it. And sometimes customers might be on the call might even ask us for advice. You know, that's happened to me. They'll be like, oh, that's an interesting question. How would you do that? You know, you're the Clavio expert. And then you just kind of turn it back on them. You know, you have to adopt that apprentice mindset. Like we were trying to learn from you. We might be the expert in like how Clavio functionally works, but we're not the expert in how you are using Clavio. And that's really what we're interested in. And don't be afraid to ask that why. It might sound stupid. Be like, oh, that's an obvious reason why they're using Clavio in this way. But you will never actually know. And you know, you might be making a bad assumption if you don't actually ask that question. I have one very basic, but I learned in my previous company that I need to make sure that I'm not leading the answer when I ask the question. So I don't want to say, do you like this, right? Or like basically what we were saying before is asking a close question that actually is a yes or no, but actually I'm telling you the answer already by saying something. Is this easy to use or this is hard to use? Kind of like those things in the question lead the customer mind to something. So I feel like that's so basic and I, I figure out the hard way. And another thing is that don't allow period of silence. I think customers, they are thinking what you're saying and sometimes they take a couple seconds to figure out what are you are really asking and sometimes just allow them to talk you get a very answer that just jump in and like asking the next question and like keep asking question. I feel like sometimes they just need some time and they keep saying things that are really more important than the first thing that they say. They say. So I feel like that's really helpful. Adding to what you just said, Karola, I think there's a really fine line between being able to navigate the conversation so that, you know, you don't go on too many tangents and you stick to the main topic, but then also being mindful of not interrupting your customers too much and stopping them from telling their stories. This is a skill like I learned co-interviewing with Ken because he's really, really good at it. Shout out to Ken. <laughs> Great skill to have. 
One thing that like a lot of us are touching on here is that user research in general and, and customer interviews in particular are actually really hard to do because you have to resist all of these basic human social instincts that you've built up throughout your whole life, right? So like we're all kind of trained to try to avoid awkward silences and fill them with something, right? That was one of the biggest things for me, getting comfortable with what Corolla was saying, which is giving the subject time to process encouraging them to, to continue speaking and to share a little bit more rather than just, you know, jumping in and talk is that that's, it's, it's a very unnatural way of communicating with somebody. If you do that in your day-to-day -day life, you would feel awkward all the time. People would be like, you know, what's, what's with this guy? That's one example. Um, another one is like what, what Anthony said, which is when somebody asks you for help, the natural thing, 99.9% .9 of the time is to try to help that person. Right. But in this particular instance, it's the wrong thing to do because you're trying to learn from them. Flipping that back on them is just like something that, you know, it's not hard to do, but you have to make an intentional conscious decision to tell the part of your brain that's usually an autopilot, like, no, don't, don't do that. Like, don't start going on and on yourself trying to educate this person. The one thing that I'll say, which is probably obvious, but was also a, a learning curve for me, probably like early in my career is don't go into it with a solution already in mind, because it doesn't matter who you are, you're going to be biased towards selective listening for that specific solution, right? It, it's impossible to eliminate cognitive biases, right? But like what you can do is become more aware of them and be like really diligent about going into a conversation with someone without any expectations, you know, even before you fully formed your product hypotheses, and then just be like really critically aware of like when you start to like fall in love with an idea, that's where I've seen research really go haywire is like when you've fallen in love with an idea and you're just looking for confirmation, right? It's that classic confirmation bias and you start missing a lot of important things. So yes, try to start early in the process before you actually have like solutions that you've grown attached to. Yeah, being mindful of things that you shouldn't be doing. One of the things I learned from experience was not to expect to stick to the script. So I had a list of questions that I had planned and for the first few interviews, I'd ask a question and regardless of the answer I got, I'd go to the second question and then the third and then the fourth and the fifth. You're not doing any listening there. You're just waiting for them to finish speaking so that you can ask the next question. And then you're, you're planning to like, I guess, review all of that through a recording. So don't rattle through questions, listen to what they're saying, and then build your next question based on what they've just told you. So yes, it's good to be prepared. Good to have a list of questions beforehand, but listen to your customers when you're talking to them. Building off of that too, a few things kind of help. First, laying out how the call is kind of generally going to go so they know what to expect. So it's not like they don't feel blind going into it. And also, I think what helps is get to actually know the person behind the screen. Because I think oftentimes we're going into it thinking we're going to get the answers we're looking for. We're like, we have that end goal in mind. But I think it goes back to the empathy piece of it's a human being at the end of the day who has a business and they're running it. They have a lot of things on their mind and it's something to kind of be mindful and respectful of. I really need to sit in this person's chair and think like this person and think of their pain points before I just go into it, asking questions that I'm looking for answers for, basically talking to them. How'd you get into this? How'd you get into this role? What's it been like? Things like that. And then also I kind of fall into this, but back to like the, the user script and like intently listening, as opposed to just following your script. Sometimes if the question isn't really getting answered, 
don't force an answer out of the person if it's just not coming to them. Sometimes you have to rephrase it. Sometimes you have to just move on to a different one, but avoiding going through the script just to kind of check off that list of questions. But at the end of the day, remembering like it's a human being and it kind of has to be a balance of conversation, intently listening, and then also trying to get the answers that are going to help with coming up with the solutions. So it's kind of like threefold. It's a big balancing act. <laughs> One thing that helped me balance all of that out was to split responsibilities. So when we started interviewing Ken and I, Ken would do the interview, ask questions, listen to the answers that he got, and then continue with more questions. Uh, and I would just be listening to both of them talk, taking notes. And so I would be able to focus on only one specific subtask. And so if you can have someone else on with you on the call who is just listening and trying to empathize with the customer, and then they can have their own set of questions that they can ask towards the end of the interview. Obviously, the process doesn't end when a call ends or when a survey response comes in. It's pretty rare that the person who is conducting the research is the only one who can gain by learning from that research. Even in cases where you are, your brain isn't perfect. You probably want to document things for yourself later on. Do you have any tips on documenting learnings to share with other people on the team, whether this be results of a survey or results of a customer call? Thoughts on documenting learnings from customers in general? Two things that we did, one which is easy, which is a lot more difficult and time intensive, but um, I think that there's a ton of different artifacts that you can create, right? Um, I'll, I'll just mention a couple. One thing that we did was created something called like a rainbow spreadsheet, which is basically just a grid of the people that you talk to and either the features or like the problems or like, like the needs and motivations that they had and, and how frequently they came up, right? And so then you can see, oh, like there's one theme. All these people are describing the ability to apply filters to their product feed. Like half of all the interview participants mentioned that as opposed to a few other things, which maybe only one or two did, right? And so it's just a quick and easy way to visualize, oh, like based on the people that you talk to, here are the pockets of like highest demand. The more time intensive one that we did that I, I think was worthwhile, but wouldn't necessarily recommend for everybody was, so we, we recorded all of our customer interviews with people's permission, obviously. And then we were able to kind of like cut it down into a highlight reel. You, you can imagine when you record these conversations, you have hours and hours of footage. And to the point earlier, it's, it's a lot more impactful to hear someone talk about it rather than to like play a game of telephone where there's a product manager or somebody who's telling you what they heard. And so we were able to kind of like cut down everything into a, into a highlight reel and then play that for the team of people. So all the engineers who couldn't necessarily make the calls, the designer, et cetera. And we, we all watched it together and then like, you know, would pause and like ask questions and, and discuss. And that was a really effective way, I think, of distributing the insights across the team in a way that felt more personal than me just typing up a big, long Word doc and asking everybody to read it. So those are a couple, couple of things that we did. Just to build off of that, I think if you expect people to just passively consume your insights, you're going to fail like 99% of the time. If you just send out a deck or a Word doc, with like the things that we learned, like you'll, you can look at the view history, it's going to be pretty low. So thinking of ways that you can actively engage people and get creative sometimes. One thing I've done, you know, turning some of the insights into like quizzes. So this is something that you can do really well with surveys. How do you think people responded to the survey question? Which feature was the most requested? It's kind of a fun, interactive way of getting people involved and excited about the research. 
I am learning so much from this um, this call, and I think those all are really great uh, ways to share with your team. Um, I think how do you share beyond your team? I think it's a huge issue that many companies have. How do I centralize all the learnings? And maybe some people in the call have a, an idea how to do it well, but I don't think this is completely figured out. I think as a company, we do a good job by keeping learnings in one place and using tools. I product board, for example, and making sure that that feedback gets there. If, for example, another product managers uh, get to the team, like you don't want to keep having many docs that the product manager has to share. So I think using tools sometimes is good, beyond the team and how do we keep those learnings in one place but I don't think this is completely figured out in my perspective to make it easier when you're passing down the information like you know all the specifics and all the details and everything whereas your teammates might not but try and relay the most important information that needs to go out as opposed to getting all like the details and specifics highlight what are the needs and then what are the embellishments we can like eventually get to but segmenting it that way that way it doesn't all come off as this is everything that the customer needs but we can break it up this way the person receiving the information on the teams can see these are the common patterns that we're finding throughout the calls see what are the things that are coming up the most and then what are what's the need and what's the embellishment that way it's easier to like digest that information and we have reached the end of what we have time for this episode thank you so much to the panel for coming on and sharing your insight i think it's pretty clear to anyone who's listening to this episode that there is a lot to discuss when it comes to learning from our customers and talking to our customers frankly we probably could have had an episode twice as long but in the interests of respecting everyone's schedules, we're going to stop the episode here. This episode was sponsored by Clavio. That is true of all episodes of the Clavio Data Science Podcast. Clavio empowers creators to own their own destiny. If you're curious and you want to learn more about Clavio, about Clavio Data Science, or about any of the teams or people that you heard from today, go ahead and head over to Clavio.com. That's K-L-A-V-I-Y-O.com. If you liked this episode, go ahead and subscribe to the Clavio Data Science Podcast. You can do that on just about every major podcast distribution network that's out there. We're currently being distributed on, I believe, all of the major podcast distribution networks. If we are not currently being distributed on your favorite podcast distribution network of choice, please reach out. Let me know. I'd like to change that. Also, feel free to leave us a rating or a review. That does quite a bit to boost us in the rankings and in the algorithms and if you are interested in helping more people hear the Clavio Data Science Podcast, then that is a great way to do that. In addition, if you have any questions, comments, or concerns, the best person to talk to is me. The best place to reach me is my Twitter account. That Twitter account is at Lawson underscore M underscore T. That's at L-A-W-S-O-N underscore M underscore T. Thank you for listening. Hope you have a great month.